It, it's a great pleasure and honor to introduce John Stagg, whom I think of as a good friend and colleague. We've suffered through a lot together over the last 12 or 14 years since we've known each other. Uh, John is a professor of history and editor-in-chief of the James Madison Papers at the University of Virginia, a position he's held since 1987. Before going there, he taught at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. I, you might catch a little New Zealand touch to his accent. <laughs> like Madison, uh, like Madison, John Stagg attended graduate school at Princeton. Madison arrived on campus in 1769, and 200 years later, John Stagg arrived. I, did you study Hebrew, though? No, no, he didn't study Hebrew. John is one of the world's foremost authorities on Madison, on Madison's politics and thought. His 1983 book, Mr. Madison's War, Politics, Diplomacy, and Warfare in the Early American Republic, remains the single best treatment of Madison's career. Recently, he's written two fine articles in the William and Mary Quarterly and the Journal of the Early Republic on the army during the early 19th century. He's now at work on a study of Madison and the Spanish borderlands, three episodes in diplomatic history. And his paper this afternoon will come out of that. Now, I, I, I want to say a little about his paper because he reminded me this morning or last night that he had told me this was a better title than actual paper. So I dug out the email that he sent me, which was almost a year ago when we were just starting to plan this conference. And, and I found it quite amusing and, and maybe helpful to you. On the Madison Conference next year, I am aware that there is some risk of it being a better title than it is a talk. But there is actually a serious historiographical issue at stake as I try and work out what really were Madison's policies for the Spanish borderlands during his presidency. And I think that uh, John will nicely compliment Gordon's remarks on Madison's presidency last night. Over the past 20 years, there has arisen a literature depicting how the Founding Fathers were seriously engaged in covert operations and all sorts of shenanigans with secret service funds. So it might be that we really could think of Madison as the first of the covert operations presidents and the founder of the CIA. I think this will be an intriguing talk that we all look forward to. John? Thank you, Barbara, for that introduction. It's good to be back on the Princeton campus again after so many years uh, away from it. Now, as Barbara suggested, many of you are doubtless wondering how it was possible for me to come up with the title for this paper. After all, what connection can there be between the image most of us have of Madison as the scrupulous and thoughtful architect of a balanced constitution and the gross abuses of executive power that we have come to associate with a government agency that was not created until more than a century after Madison's death. Now, historically speaking, the answer to that question can be found in two places. One, in the relatively recent past, stretching back to the 1970s, 
And the other one, going back to the early days of last century, and I sort of do a double take here when I realise we have to refer to the 20th century as last century. I'm sort of not quite up on that one yet, but it is last century. Uh, it's beginning in the period just before World War I and going through to the 1930s. So starting with the relatively recent past, my story opens in the 1970s with the report of the Senate Committee headed by Frank Church of Idaho to look into the activities of the CIA, especially the agency's conduct of covert operations. These included the attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro, the overthrow of Salvador Allende in Chile, and the infringement of domestic civil liberties through such programs as the notorious Quintelpro operation. The Church Committee issued a stinging rebuke to the CIA for these and other misdeeds, and it reinforced its findings with the argument that many CIA activities after 1947 had departed a very long way from both the principles and the spirit of constitutional government that the Founding Fathers had sought to establish in 1787. The committee even went so far as to devote one whole volume, and this volume was written by the Congressional Research Service, one whole volume in its six-volume report laying out the historical evidence on which the charge that the agency had deviated from fundamental American principles could be based. Now, needless to say, neither the political judgments nor the historical scholarship of the Church Committee sat very well with the CIA itself. So maybe it was in the best traditions of the agency that one of its curators of historical intelligence, a man named Edward F. Sale, embarked on a counterattack by compiling evidence to show that many American presidents before 1947, and especially the presidents of the founding era, had engaged in covert operations of one sort or another, and nobody had given a second thought to either their morality or to their constitutionality. Now, Sale's counterblast appeared in 1986 in a journal, or the first number of a journal sponsored by the CIA itself, the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, but Sale did not act alone. Over the past 20 years or so, a number of other articles and monographs have appeared. They've come out of various think tanks, uh, other government agencies, university political science departments, and a number of freelance writers, some of whom may have worked for the CIA uh, in the past. And all these writings document Sale's basic argument with as much historical evidence uh, as their authors could lay their hand on. Now, for fairly obvious reasons, all of these publications paid particular attention to those, the activities of those founding fathers who later became presidents of the United States. After all, getting right with the founding fathers has long been a standard rhetorical trope in American political debate, so I don't think we can blame the CAA for trying to make the most of this opportunity. Now, in this quest for historical legitimacy, the agency historians, if I can sort of term them loosely that for the purposes of this talk, uh, funnily enough, they didn't do all that much digging in the archives. And the reason why they didn't do much digging in the archives was simply that they didn't have to. Instead, they relied heavily on the writings of a group of scholars writing in the first third of the 20th century whose interests lay in the breakup of the Spanish Empire in the early 19th century and the response of the United States to that momentous development. And it's here that the second part of my historical background to this talk uh, kicks in. Now, these scholars, and I'm thinking particularly here of men like Isaac J. Cox, Charles C. Griffin, and Arthur Whitaker, 
These scholars performed yeoman service by going through hitherto unexplored Spanish and Latin American records in order to construct a reasonably well-grounded picture about how the United States went about establishing commercial and political relationships with Spain's rebellious colonies in the New World and the independent nations of Latin America. It were these scholars, for example, who gave us some idea, and only some idea, of the incredibly tortuous career of James Wilkinson as he walked his tightrope of serving Presidents Jefferson and Madison as the ranking Brigadier General in the United States Army, while at the same time taking a pension from Spain to frustrate or derail the policies of his government. And it was also these same scholars who alerted us to the fact that in the summer of 1810, when the revolutions for Spanish-American independence began in earnest, James Madison sent secret agents on assignments of various sorts into the Spanish colonies of Buenos Aires, Chile, Cuba, Florida, Mexico, and Venezuela. Now, you've probably heard of some of these uh, agents. The best known of them uh, was the South Carolinian Joel Poinsett, uh, whom we now know, if nothing else, uh, for giving his name to a Christmas pot plant. But of greater importance were the agents Madison sent into Cuba, Florida, and Mexico. All these regions border on, or they are adjacent to, the United States, and their rebellions against Spain also set in motion the chain of events that will ultimately lead to the incorporation of the so-called Spanish borderlands into the United States. These processes, in fact, began with Madison's annexation of Spanish West Florida in October 1810. They continued through the acquisition of East Florida in 1819, and they culminated in the uh, annexation of Texas and California between 1845 and 1848. Now, in all parts of the Spanish borderlands, it became very clear that Madison's agents had, in one way or another, become closely involved in the rebellions against Spain. So much so, in fact, that it almost seemed that Madison had sent them into those regions, regions for the express purpose of fomenting or encouraging rebellion. Now, that Madison might have done this seemed quite plausible. After all, the United States actually laid claim to both East and West Florida and also to Texas. Beginning in 1804, the Jefferson administration had pursued a diplomatic strategy based on the assumptions that East Florida might be acquired as fair compensation for spoliation claims against Spain dating back to the Quasar War of the late 1790s. And, of course, West Florida and Texas, uh, the United States argued, had also been part of the Louisiana Territory that was purchased from France in 1803. So that all that Madison seemed to be doing in the summer of 1810 was taking a few small steps to realize a long-standing agenda he had inherited from his friend and predecessor in the White House. Now, I can only barely begin to imagine the sense of satisfaction that the beleaguered curators of historical intelligence in the CIA experienced on digging into this early 20th century body of scholarship. And by the same token, I cannot so easily imagine just how the Congressional Research Service actually managed to miss most of it, but they did. But leaving that aside, what do we have here? The father of the Constitution himself engaged in covert operations to the extent of inciting rebellions against a government with which the United States was at peace, and one of the consequences of that engagement was to accelerate the expansion of the Republic's borders to their present continental limits. And what better justification can there possibly be for the constitutionality of the CIA and its activities? What good American is going to quarrel with this, after all? 
So it is for that reason that James Madison has has come to occupy an honored place in the recent writings that take as their starting point the desire to repudiate the findings of the church committee. One such scholar, a man named Stephen Knott, who teaches in the United States Air Force Academy, fondly writes of somebody whom he refers to as, and I quote, the covert Madison, close quote. And he celebrates his presidency, and I quote again, as the, co- as the golden age of covert operations in American history, close quote. At the fourth president, it would seem, organized revolutions. He broke the law. And everything that Madison is said to have done here, I'll just point out, is in violation of a law uh, passed in 1794 called the Neutrality Act, which made it illegal to set out or to organize on American soil uh, any sort of armed expedition against a territory or a nation with which the United States was at peace. So what Madison was doing uh, was illegal, and all the while he lied to the newspapers and to foreign governments about what he was doing. In the process, Madison became a skilled practitioner of the art later known as, quote, plausible presidential denial, close quote. Even better, there was no congressional oversight to speak of here and no hint of impeachment proceedings either. This is historical scholarship of the original intent approach to interpreting the Constitution with a vengeance, and I offer my apologies here to Jack Rakov. Maybe it's not original intent, but it's certainly a form of original practice. Uh, Hence the title for my paper. Now, what do we make of all this? There is no doubt that this recent picture of Madison has cast certain aspects of his presidency into new and bold relief. But for a professional historian and one who is charged with the task of producing the supposedly definitive edition of his papers, it poses three very serious problems. One is simply the obviously anachronistic and possibly tendentious nature of the argument. That requires us to ask, therefore, just how good is it as serious and scholarly history? The second is the very difficult decisions it requires me to make as I edit those portions of Madison's papers that deal with these episodes. Do I edit the papers in ways that appears to endorse this depiction of James Madison, or do I go out of the way to point out where it might be questionable or wrong? Now, the longer-term intellectual and political consequences of any decision I make here, might make here could be very considerable. Who knows, a Supreme Court justice might end up something that I uh, wrote and even base a decision on it. But avoiding this problem uh, is not a very uh, useful strategy either, and it's difficult to avoid it in the sake of sort of being neutral on these uh, issues that I've just laid out here. Because both Madison's own personal papers and the available historical literature raise this problem pretty unambiguously, and it's, uh, to simply evade it in the name of neutrality, I think, would severely limit the value of the papers of James Madison as a research and a reference tool. And finally, several difficulties arise once we try to reconcile this picture of a Madison who pursued aggressive and illegal policies in the Spanish borderlands with a more familiar image of Madison that is enshrined in our historiography. And that is, of course, of the overly cautious and fumbling chief executive who made major foreign policy blunders throughout his first term and who then went on to compound them by his total mismanagement of the War of 1812 against Great Britain. This is the executive Madison in most textbooks of American history, the leader who was pushed into a war that he never wanted and then suffered the indignity of being the only president ever to be driven from the nation's capital by an invading army. 
I would submit, however, uh, that these two wildly divergent pictures of Madison in the White House cannot be easily reconciled, if they can be reconciled at all. It leaves us with a schizophrenic Madison, but I suspect it is the historians and not Madison who are schizophrenic here. We come back to Gordon's problem last night, and I'll affirm in a different context there is, in fact, only one James Madison. Uh, but I think for this reason, uh, historians need to deal with Madison's policies in the Spanish borderlands very carefully indeed. Because if we don't get that right, we're going to get a lot wrong about what we think went on uh, in his presidencies. So it's this problem of Madison and the Spanish borderlands that has preoccupied me uh, in recent years. So I now want to turn to the question of what sense might be made of Madison's activities and the activities of his agents, particularly in the Floridas and Texas. Central to this, is any, uh, central to this discussion, any discussion of this matter is the case of West Florida in 1810. It was the one episode that did lead to the successful overthrow of the Spanish colonial regime, and it was followed immediately by the annexation uh, of the province to the United States. Now, almost any book that you can consult here will tell you that Madison sent two agents into West Florida. Their names were William Wyckoff and George Matthews, and he sent them in to encourage American settlers in the province to declare their independence from Spain. The settlers did exactly that in September 1810, and when he received the news, Madison annexed the province in October though he did conceal the fact from Congress and the general public until December 1810, by which time United States military forces had taken possession of Baton Rouge. The West Florida episode is the most extensively studied example of an early American covert operation, and the agency historians to whom I referred to earlier have been unanimous in their praise of it as a model of how to plan and to execute a successful clandestine maneuver against a foreign government. It will come as no surprise to you, therefore, at this point, when I tell you that almost anything about the conventional wisdom in any book here is wrong, or at least it's got the emphasis in all the wrong places. It is certainly true that Madison sent the two agents in question into West Florida, but he did not, I stress not, order them to foment rebellion against Spain, and he explicitly ruled out the idea that the province should issue a declaration of independence. Nor has any historian of the subject paid sufficient attention to the problem of why Madison might have acted this way when he did. Now, the moment when Madison made his decision to send Wickoff and Matthews into West Florida, in fact, is the same moment he's made this decision to send all these other agents into Spanish-American colonies, it was the week beginning the 13th of June, 1810. We can be that precise about it. Now, on the Weeks preceding that date, Madison had received the last dispatches written from Spain by his diplomat in Spain, a man named George Irving. Irving wrote these last dispatches as he was fleeing from Cadiz, which was about to be occupied by French forces, and Irving was predicting that it was absolutely inevitable that Napoleon would complete his conquest of the Iberian Peninsula and place his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the throne of Spain and the Indies. At the same time, Madison also received news from Venezuela that the local authorities in Caracas had announced to the world that they would never accept any member of the Bonaparte family as the ruler of the Spanish Empire. That statement was the first of many to issue from uh, the Spanish-American colonies after 1810, but to Madison, all this information meant only one thing, and that was that the days of the Kingdom of Spain were numbered and that its American empire was on the point of dissolution. 
Now, we know, of course, that the Kingdom of Spain survived and that its American empire did not actually collapse until the early 1820s. But my point here is that in 1810, Madison believed he was dealing with events that would only be a matter of weeks and months, not years. His problem was what to do about it, especially with respect to those Spanish territories to which the United States laid claim. If he did nothing and waited on events, he surely ran the risk that American claims and interests would go by default. Either Joseph Bonaparte would inherit these claims as part of his empire, and if he did that, this would thereby recreate the security nightmare that the Republic thought it had escaped from by purchasing Louisiana in 1803, or Great Britain might seize various Spanish colonies to keep them out of the clutches of Napoleon and his brother. This last scenario, I would suggest, was not a contrived bogeyman to justify actions that Madison might have wanted to take for other reasons. Florida, after all, had been a British colony as late as the 1780s, and it was by no means far-fetched to suppose that if Great Britain wanted to stop Napoleon from swallowing up the Spanish Empire, one option it could pursue would be to seize Cuba or the Gulf Coast in order to give the Royal Navy strategic control of the important strategic approaches to Spanish America. This was one reason why Madison sent agents into the Spanish-American colonies. He needed to know exactly what was going on there and how it might affect American interests in the very near future. But coming back to West Florida, despite the potential gravity of the situation, Madison, as I mentioned, did not order his two agents to foment rebellion or to encourage the province to declare its independence. For Madison, the problem was not the Spanish colonial regime. He simply assumed it would become defunct as Spain itself collapsed as Napoleon conquered uh, Spain uh, by the end of 1810. Madison's problem was with what would fill the political vacuum he anticipated emerging on the Gulf Coast. His solution was to instruct his agents to persuade the American settlers in West Florida to organize a convention. And that convention was to issue an invitation to the United States to fill the vacuum by making good its claim uh, that it had purchased the province in 1803. Now that Madison chose this tactic in itself, I think, is evidence of how far he was thinking from in terms of subverting the Spanish regime. Conventions, and I might call on Gordon Wood to bear me out on this point, had long occupied an important role in Anglo-American and Republican political theory. They were useful as legitimating devices to deal with situations of an extraordinary nature, such as an interregnum or a power vacuum, that could seemingly be bridged by no other means. And just think of all the convention parliaments in English history itself, and also the conventions that had preceded the American Revolution uh, in the 1770s. Once Madison had received the invitation from the Convention of West Florida, it was his intention to lay it before Congress at the end of 1810 and obtain its sanction for what Madison assumed would be a relatively peaceful incorporation of the territory into the Republic. And in all of this, the President was not thinking of rebellions, subversion, or violence as the means to pursue his goals. Instead, he was trying to come up with the least disruptive and least radical way to protect the position that the United States had purchased West Florida in 1803. The problem was that this was not what happened. The West Florida Convention misread the script, and its members, fearing that Spanish forces from Cuba would suppress them, panicked by issuing a declaration of independence as a way of forcing Madison to take the sort of actions that he was trying to avoid. Madison then promptly annexed the province and suppressed the independent government of West Florida. 
not the Spanish regime. In fact, the Spanish garrison remained in the position of Mobile throughout these proceedings and for the next three years after that date, and Madison gave strict orders that American forces were not to attack that remaining symbol of Spanish authority in the province. But he had to seize the territory controlled by the Independent Republic of West Florida or risk undermining the claim that the province had been purchased in 1803 and by right belonged to the United States. Those proceedings then led to a very nasty confrontation between the occupying forces sent in by Madison and the one and only president of the Independent Republic of West Florida, a man named Fulwer Skipworth. Skipworth was so angry that he drafted, though he ultimately decided against sending, two extremely angry and abusive letters to Madison complaining about the outrageous tyranny of the American occupation of West Florida. But more importantly, the episode was not a peaceful one because the West Florida Conventioneers, in declaring their independence, had seized a Spanish fort and killed a Spanish official. Those transactions gave the business a very different appearance from the one intended by James Madison. The result was that the United States acquired West Florida in 1810 by violence and bloodshed. And to the Spanish, not to mention to the British and the French as well, Madison appeared to have masterminded the whole thing. Now, Madison at this point could have hardly dispelled this charge by turning around and saying, this was not what I meant was to happen after all. I mean, that, that didn't help his case at all at that point. And he never attempted to do that. He was simply stuck with the consequences of what had taken place. And this, I think, is what really happened in West Florida in 1810. And my point is, it is hardly an example of a successful covert operation at all. If anything, it was the exact opposite of that. Nothing went according to plan, and historians might take that into consideration before they praise it as a brilliant example of how to overthrow a foreign government. So my sense of this is that Madison made something of a miscalculation or a blunder in his handling of the West Florida problem. He understood very well, though, that he had to protect the country from the possible consequences of that miscalculation, and these remained the likelihood that either France or Great Britain could move into East Florida or to Cuba to prevent the United States from attempting further encroachments on the Spanish Empire. Accordingly, in January 1811, Madison sought and received from Congress both the authority and the means to occupy East Florida in the event of either a foreign power seizing that province or the local authority there voluntarily agreeing to turn it over to the United States. Now, this authority was granted in the so-called No Transfer Resolution, and historians often describe the No Transfer Resolution uh, as one of the antecedents of the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Now, the second contingency implied in the resolution that the local authorities might turn uh, East Florida over to the United States was not as actually unlikely or as implausible as we might think. In 1810, the Spanish governor of West Florida, thinking just as Madison had thought that Napoleon was about to conquer all Spain, had hinted that he might consider surrendering Mobile to the United States as a way of keeping it out of the hands of France or Joseph Bonaparte. It was, therefore, by no means impossible that an arrangement might be made for Mobile which could then be extended to cover East Florida, especially if Cadiz fell to French forces or a British fleet showed up off the Florida Capes. Acting on that assumption, Madison, in early 1811, sent two agents into Mobile and East Florida to observe developments in those places, and he authorized them to act if one of the two contingencies anticipated in the no-transfer resolution should come to pass. The two agents in question were George Matthews, whom we've already met before, and uh, John McKee. 
Now, historians, especially those whom I've referred to as the agency uh, historians, uh, have often regarded the wording of the no transfer resolution as so broad and so hopelessly vague that it must have been written for the purpose of allowing the United States to subvert the government of East Florida in order to take the territory into the Republic. But that is to write from the vantage point of hindsight and in effect to claim what was to know, to know what was going to happen before it actually happened. And this is probably, I think, something that all historians should agree we would try to avoid. But if we suspend the clarity of hindsight for the moment, I would submit that the wording and the purposes of the no transfer resolution were quite specific, and they meant exactly what they said. And after all, I think we all probably agree that Madison was a man who chose his words carefully about questions of meaning. But in East Florida, as in West Florida, events did not work out as they were supposed to. Matthews and McKee went into both Mobile and East Florida. They sought out the Spanish authorities, and they informed them about the terms of the no-transfer resolution. The Spanish did not respond positively. By the middle of 1811, the situation in Spain seemed by no means as dire as it had done in 1810. Not only had Cadiz not fallen, but the authorities there had also summoned the Cortes, a Spanish imperial parliament, to reorganize the resistance to Napoleon on the broadest possible basis. And understandably enough, the Spanish in East Florida, after what had happened in West Florida in 1810, were a little weary by this time of professions of good intentions from American agents. They accordingly rebuffed Matthews and McKee. This led Matthews to the conclusion that the authorities in East Florida would not consent to turn the province over to the United States unless they were replaced with another local authority of, shall we say, a more willing disposition. And Matthews had some ideas on this score. Uh, Matthews, it is important to stress, had served as the governor of Georgia previously in his career. His political acquaintances were extensive, and they included a number of Georgia planters who had moved into East Florida to develop plantations there. Many of these Georgians had taken out Spanish citizenship. They did so because that was the condition for obtaining legal title to land and the right to do business in the Spanish colony. So Matthews came up with the absolutely brilliant idea of replacing the Spanish colonial authorities with a new government of American-born Spanish subjects who might voluntarily turn East Florida over to the United States. And after August 1811, this was exactly what Matthews set out to do. There thus emerged in East Florida the so-called Patriot Party, and at its head was this prominent Georgian-born Spanish subject with the resplendent Hispanic name of John Houston McIntosh. <laughs> now, in fairness to Matthews here, it needs to be said that he did not conceal from the administration what he was doing or why he was doing it. He reported this back to the State Department, and he requested on several occasions arms and ammunition for his scheme. He even, believe it or not, promised to be discreet in his activities so as not to compromise the government of the United States. Madison, uh, sorry, Matthews received no reply to any of these letters. In fact, he received no communication from Washington on any subject at any time at all between the summer of 1811 and the spring of 1812. Nevertheless, Matthews went about his self-assigned task. The two contingencies anticipated in the no-transfer resolution permitted the employment of American forces to carry them out. So Matthews then made contact with American Army and Navy officers on the Gulf Coast and on the border between Georgia and Spanish Florida. And to cut a very long story short here, the strategically located Army officer, a man named Major Laval, refused to go along with the scheme, telling Matthews that what he was doing could not be justified by his instructions. 
The Navy officer, uh, Captain Hugh Campbell, however, was prepared to play ball, and he agreed to place a few gunboats at Matthews' disposal. Matthews put it all together, and in March 1812, he and the Patriot forces, accompanied by four U.S. Navy gunboats, attacked the Spanish garrison on Amelia Island and forced its surrender. The Patriots then reconstituted themselves as the government of East Florida, signed an agreement with Matthews turning the province over to the United States, and Matthews then proudly forwarded that agreement to Washington. The next move was up to Madison. To the surprise of many, he repudiated Matthews' action, and on the 4th of April 1812, the Secretary of State reprimanded the agent accordingly, telling him he'd violated his instructions and he'd gone, off the, uh, uh, gone out of the ballpark. East Florida, it turned out, would not become part of the United States until 1819, two years after Madison had left the presidency. Now, the only remark that Madison made about the episode that survives to today was in an April 1812 letter to Jefferson where he wrote, and I quote, In East Florida, Matthews has been playing a tragic comedy in the face of common sense as well as his instructions. His extravagance is places in the most distressing dilemma. Close quote. Now, that might seem straightforward enough, but historians have never taken Madison at his own word here as the reason for disavowing Matthews. Their arguments for not doing so boil down to three points, or three assumptions about what had occurred in this episode. One is that just as Madison had intended to subvert the government of West Florida and had in fact done so, he was trying to pull off the same stunt in East Florida. The second is that the administration had a pretty fair idea of what Matthews was thinking of doing and had purposely failed to stop him from doing it. The third is that Madison would have accepted East Florida from Matthews had it not been for an unfortunate problem of timing. Now, by this they mean uh, the following. In March 1812, Madison had sent to Congress the letters of a British spy in America, a man named Captain John Henry, who in 1808 had been sent into New England to assess the prospects for that region seceding from the Union. Madison had acquired Henry's letters uh, earlier in the year, and he sent them to Congress in March 1812 in the hope of stirring up anti-British sentiment as a prelude to the war for which the nation was then preparing. The problem was, of course, that Matthews appeared to be guilty of exactly the same offence for which Madison was trying to indict Great Britain as a justification for war against Great Britain. And for that reason, if for no other, uh, Matthews had to be disavowed, and Madison, it said, resorted to the doctrine of plausible presidential deniability as a way of doing so. Now, there is no doubt that the problem of timing was unfortunate. Great Britain was an ally of the Spanish Bourbon monarchy, and Napoleon had, in fact, imprisoned the legitimate uh, Bourbon king of uh, Spain, Ferdinand VII, in a castle in the south of France. So there was a legitimate uh, Spanish king. And Britain recognized that legitimate Spanish king. Uh, and so what Matthews had done in 1812 promised to make the next meeting between James Madison and the British minister in Washington one of excruciating embarrassment. You just sort of leave it to imagine what the British minister was going to say to Madison about this episode. And it's easy to see why Madison would not have wanted to discuss the matter with the British minister as he was trying to justify a war against Great Britain. Unless, of course, we assume that Madison was so reckless that he wanted to go to war with both Great Britain and Spain at the same time. Uh, but I don't think he was, and there was no evidence that Madison was ever prepared to go that far uh, or to risk that development. But 
Does that mean that had it not been for the problem of the Henry letters, that Madison would otherwise have seized East Florida in 1812? It's always difficult to answer that sort of hypothetical counterfactual proposition with any certainty. But the assumption that Madison was trying to seize East Florida in 1812, just as he had taken West Florida in 1810, is in itself somewhat fallacious. It rests on a fairly serious misunderstanding of both what Madison had intended in 1810 and what did in fact happen in that year. In that sense, the two episodes were not as familiar as historians like, uh, not as similar, sorry, as historians have liked to believe, and they should not assume what might have been true in one case is equally true for the other, especially if they are wrong in their assumptions about the first case anyway. If so, that leaves us with the problem that the administration knew what Matthews was up to and had purposely failed to stop him and therefore that it must have intended him to have done it. Perhaps, uh, you know, this is, we can uh, talk about this at some length, though I would submit here that it is possible in the abstract sense at least anyway for a person not to take an action and to believe that the act of omission, even if it is a conscious act of omission, would have no real consequences. Now, in this context, we might recall that on several occasions, Matthews had specifically requested reinforcements and additional supplies for his scheme on the grounds that he actually couldn't do it uh, with the resources that were available to him at the time. And these, he told the War Department, he said, we have 200 troops in the region and we have four gunboats. That's the total extent uh, of our military force. Uh, so he asked for more reinforcements, more arms, more ammunition. Uh, he did so on several occasions in the second half of 1811. The administration never responded to any of those requests, and its silence here might be interpreted not as consent, but as disapproval and a reminder, albeit a tacit one, that Matthews had his orders and he should confine himself to the limits they imposed on his actions. One might then explain the administration's silence towards Matthews before 18, April 1812 in a number of other ways. One is that by that time the President and his Cabinet had become totally preoccupied for preparing the war against Great Britain. Two, that sort of that agent in East Florida had slipped below the horizon and they didn't remember about him again until he suddenly sprang his actions on them in, in the spring of 1812. And three is that Madison never supposed that Matthews would actually act on his own ideas to the extent of him violating his instructions anyway. Those instructions at the time they were written did not contemplate the sort of actions that Matthews eventually took. After all, is it plausible that any administration could have actually wanted Matthews to have seized East Florida as he did when at the very same time Madison was planning to use a similar episode involving British subversion as a justification for war against that nation uh, and a uh, nation that was allied with Spain. Madison might have made plenty of mistakes as president, but I think it's difficult to believe that he was actually so stupid as that scenario suggests. This in turn might remind us that not everything in history is the result of a conspiracy. And in this case, we should be prepared to consider the possibility that the East Florida fiasco was the result of a chapter of accidents. Now that, of course, is to give Madison the benefit of the doubt. But I think there is a case to be made here that he is entitled to the benefit of the doubt and that he disavowed Matthews because he had violated both his instructions and the neutrality laws of the United States. 
But probably some of you are a little skeptical about what I've been saying for the past few moments, and you probably think, no, it doesn't look good to me. Madison shouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt uh, about East Florida. If you think that, I would ask you to suspend your judgment for just a little longer until we consider the third case of an executive agent getting embroiled in a rebellion in the Spanish borderlands. And that is the case of Texas in 1812 and 1813. The Texan episode is better known as the Gutierrez McGee Raid. It is so named because of its two leaders, Augustus McGee, who was a former officer from the United States Army, and Jose Bernardo Maximilian Gutierrez de Lara, whom we might describe, I suppose, as a Mexican freedom fighter. Now this raid, or technically uh, it's more frequently referred to as a filibuster, was one of the largest anti-Spanish operations ever undertaken in the early 19th century. Forces amounting to about 1,500 Americans and Mexicans invaded Texas after August 1812. They declared Texas to be independent in April 1813, and they remained in the province until August 1813, when they were finally defeated by royalist Spanish forces. Historians of American national politics and diplomacy have tended to overlook this episode. Go to a biography of James Madison and you won't find this episode mentioned in any of them. Uh, so th th we've overlooked this episode, but it in fact does have an extensive regional historiography, because most of its most noteworthy events occurred in the region of San Antonio and not too far from the Alamo. For that reason, among others, Mexicans have always regarded the Gutierrez-McGee raid as a prelude to the Texan movement for independence in the 1830s, and I think it has become an article of faith among Mexicans that the United States tried to dismember their nation in 1812-1813 at the very time when it was struggling to establish its own independence from Spain. This is the first manifestation of the problem of the Colossus of the North in Mexican impressions of the United States. Now, one reason why the Mexicans believe this is that we can find an American agent at the center of these events. That agent was William Shaler, a Connecticut merchant who had been sent by Madison in June 1810 on missions to both Cuba and Mexico. And Shaler, just as surely as Matthews had done in East Florida, became deeply involved in the struggle, to the point that in April 1813 he tried to take over the direction of the filibuster by ousting Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels and replacing him with another Spanish-American revolutionary, Jose Alvarez de Toledo. Shaler, moreover, left by far the largest paper trail of all these early American agents. Throughout the 30 months of his mission, Shaler sent over 150 letters to the State Department, and that's an average of over five letters per month. And I have to say, they are very good letters indeed, once you get past the problem of his very difficult handwriting. They are fascinating documents. Uh, they are such good documents, in fact, that they would almost certainly disqualify Shaler for a job in the CIA today on the grounds that no agent should ever leave a paper trail like that. It's, yeah, it's mind-boggling. Uh, the problem is they convey to the administration a great deal of fascinating detail about the filibuster. So much detail, in fact, that the historians have concluded that the agent could not possibly have known so much about this raid unless he had also been actively engaged in organizing it right from the outset. Okay. 
Now, historians have assumed that Shaler was the organizing force behind the filibuster, and they have maintained that Madison intended Shaler to tax Texas from Mexico in order to bring it into the United States, just as they argue that Madison tried to bring East and West Florida into the Republic in a similar fashion. They have assumed these intentions from their, these intentions from their interpretation of both Shaler's letters and Shaler's acquaintance with the leaders of the filibuster. He knew them well, there's no doubt about that. And as further proof that this was Madison's purpose, historians believe that they have found evidence that the administration, in this case, engaged in a classic diversionary tactic, fully worthy of the CIA itself, as part of the effort to subvert the Spanish regime in Texas. Now that tactic was the attempt made by Madison in the summer of 1812 to send another agent, and the agent of this name is a man named John Hamilton Robinson, uh, who originally came from Virginia, that Madison in the summer of 1812 sent Robinson as another agent to establish diplomatic relations with the Spanish authorities in Texas, most notably a man named Don Nemesio Salcedo, who was the Commandant General of the Internal Provinces of Mexico, which is the Spanish Administrative Division, which included Texas, uh, uh, that included the internal provinces, included uh, Texas. Now, the problem with the Robinson mission in 1812 is that Robinson was instructed to make a deal with Nemesio Salcedo that would have preserved the existing borders between the United States and Mexico until such time as they could be amicably negotiated at some later date. There is therefore no way in which this offer could have been sincere if it is assumed that Shaler had also been sent by Madison on another mission to detach Texas from Mexico at the same time. The conclusion seemed inescapable. The Shaler ministry mission was the real policy of the administration and the Robinson mission was the diversionary tactic. So what is the truth here? Now, in constructing this interpretation that I've just described, historians never bothered to go in search of the instructions Shaler received for his mission. But one of the advantages of having to sort of put out the definitive edition of the papers of James Madison, that one is required to find documents like this. And as it so happens, I did find the instructions that were given to Shaler by the Madison administration in 1810. And these instructions can also be supplemented by the remarkable recent discovery of Shaler's letterbooks and diaries, would you believe diaries, for his Mexican mission. And when Shaler's letters to Washington are read in the light of the contents of his instructions, his letterbooks, and his diaries, a very different picture begins to emerge of both his activities and Madison's intentions are in the Spanish borderlands. So, what was Shaler supposed to be doing then? Let me state at the outset that his instructions make absolutely no mention of fomenting rebellion, subverting the government of Mexico, or detaching Texas for the United States. Instead, in 1810, Shaler was told to go first to Cuba to assess where the allegiances of that island's inhabitants might lie in the event of the collapse of the Spanish monarchy. Were the Cubans, Madison wanted to know, pro-British, were they pro-French, or were they pro-American? And if they were pro-American, was it possible that Cubans might even be interested in joining the United States? question was raised at that early point in Cuban-American relations. Now what Shaler actually determined on these matters is that it was quite possible that the Cubans were more pro-American than they were pro-British or pro-French, but that they had very little interest in joining the United States. And Shaler also concluded that it didn't matter very much whether they actually joined the Union or not, provided Cuba itself could be kept free from the influence of European imperial powers. 
After the Cuban mission, Shaler was then to go to Veracruz in Mexico to make his way to the region around Mexico City and report back on the progress of the rebellion against Spain. Now, in the event of Mexico declaring its independence, Shaler was to make contact with the successor regime. And he was told to make contact with the successor regime to spread American goodwill, to talk about trade prospects, and to see what Mexicans thought about the future of Florida and Texas. In other words, to see what the Mexicans thought about those parts uh, of Spanish territory that the United States had claimed for itself as a consequence of the Louisiana Purchase. Now, Shaler's instructions made it clear that Madison would take the line that the Floridas, East and West Florida, must become part of the United States, but that the question of the boundary between Mexico and the United States was open for friendly negotiation. Indeed, Shaler was explicitly told that the United States would not insist on the Rio Grande as the boundary line. And that meant, in practical terms, that if Mexico agreed that the Floridas would come to the United States, the United States, for its part, would leave Texas uh, to Mexico. Now, there's possibly something for President George W. Bush and President Vicente Fox to talk about here at some future meeting on their ranch, and they might want to revisit this deal. But those of you who have some grasp of the history of the United States foreign policy will immediately note that in this idea are some of the elements of the later transcontinental treaty of 1819 in which the United States did renounce its claim to Texas in exactly the ways anticipated by Shaler's instructions. But this is to get too far ahead of my story. What actually happened was that Shaler never got to Veracruz or Mexico City. The Spanish threw him out of Cuba in November 1811. They thought he was a French agent, actually. Shaler didn't concede. He said, I'm an American agent, and I want to do X, Y, and Z. And they didn't believe him. They thought he was French. Um, but so they expelled him from Cuba in 1811. And he ended up in New Orleans, where he then met the Mexican rebel Gutierrez, who had come to the United States in quest of aid for his cause. Shaler then decided to accompany Gutierrez to Nagatash as a way of getting into Mexico by the back door and carry out his 18 twin instructions in that fashion. Now, these instructions, as I've already said, made no mention of filibusters and subversion, and what Shaler's letterbooks and diaries make abundantly clear is although he knew a great deal about the activities of Gutierrez and McGee in organizing their invasion of Texas, he neither participated in those activities nor did he approve of them as sound policy as far as American interests in the borderland was concerned. He by and large reported developments back to Washington, adding that if the filibuster should succeed, and Shaler actually regarded himself as powerless to stop it, he said, look, it's going to happen no matter what I do, he would simply follow in its wake as a way of getting into Mexico and ultimately reaching Mexico City in that manner. And all of Shaler's instructions and actions dealing with the filibuster were in fact consistent with that plan until the spring of 1813 when the agent did intervene in the filibuster by replacing Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels. He did not take this action in accordance with any orders from Washington, but more simply because he became so angry with the Mexican rebels after they murdered all the Spanish officers they had taken prisoner when they captured San Antonio in March 1813, that he decided on his own initiative that Gutierrez had to be replaced if the Mexican Revolution itself was not to degenerate into barbarism and tyranny. 
Now, by this stage, Shaler was not concerned with the details of boundary disputes between Mexico and the United States, but he did care enough about the larger issues at stake to want the United States to have a Republican Mexico for a neighbor rather than an unenlightened and murderous despotism, and that was what Shaler thought the alternatives were. But he always assumed that Texas would be part of a Mexican Republic and not part of the United States, and this can be documented in copious ways from the material contained in his letterbooks, and I haven't got time to sort of go into all the other details which in fact establishes that point. So, what did Madison do when he learned that Shaler had ousted Gutierrez as leader of the Mexican rebels? In June 1813, he disavowed the act and reprimanded the agent in exactly the same terms that Matthews had been reprimanded in April 1812, that his actions had exceeded his instructions and violated the neutrality laws of the United States. And on this occasion, unlike in 1812, there was no problem of unfortunate timing that might have prevented Madison going on just to see what might be gained from Shaler's actions. Had Madison wanted Texas at this juncture, he could have let his agent continue on whatever venture he was embarked upon. Instead, he stopped him and ordered him to get out of Mexico altogether. Now, if so, what of the Robinson mission as the classic diversionary tactic to confuse the Spanish and Mexico? What was once a difficult problem now seems to be quite clear. If Shaler's mission was not about subversion and filibustering, then Robinson's mission was exactly about what Robinson's instructions said it was, namely that Madison wanted to conclude a negotiated boundary settlement in the southwest with whatever neighboring government was in power there, be that government Spanish or Mexican. But after the summer of 1810, Madison was more inclined to assume that it was going to be a Mexican government rather than a Spanish one. In conclusion, then, where does that leave us with our larger question about Madison's actions in the Spanish borderlands as furnishing historical precedents that might sanction seemingly similar covert operations on the part of later American presidents? Recall here that historians who have studied this subject have all assumed that there was essential similarity in motives, goals, and methods in Madison's policies towards East Florida, West Florida, and Texas, namely that the president wanted to annex all three regions to the United States and that he employed the clandestine tactic of overthrowing the colonial regime in each case. That assumption is simply incorrect. Madison approached each of the three cases with different goals and different methods in mind. In no case was subversion either his purpose or his method, and when two of his agents did engage in these tactics, they were disavowed and repudiated for breaking orders and breaking the law. Maybe this is perhaps not the best record that the CIA wants to claim as vindication for its own historical record, and in that sense there is, I think, a world of difference between Madison sending agents into some of Spain's rebellious colonies after 1810 and, let us say, Richard Nixon's actions against Salvador Allende in Chile in the 1970s. Now, the issue here is not really whether Madison or other early presidents used secret or confidential agents, or that they controlled the discretionary money of a contingent fund for unspecified purposes with no congressional oversight. All early American presidents used such agents for a wide variety of tasks that could not otherwise be carried out by the then existing institutions of government. There was nothing very surprising or even necessarily anything very sinister about that. The real issue is, is whether a founding father like James Madison could ever have sanctioned such a massive concentration of unchecked power in the executive branch of, uh, of the uh, government in the manner that the CIA offered to American presidents in the age of the Cold War.
Now, Madison certainly understood the dangers that unlimited executive discretion in the realm of foreign policy and war posed for constitutional liberty at home. As he wrote to Jefferson on at least two occasions uh, at the height of uh, John Adams' quasi-war against France in the, in, in the 1790s, he said, and it was, I quote, a universal truth that throughout history that the fetters imposed on liberty at home have ever been forged out of the weapons provided for the defence against real, pretended, or imaginary dangers from abroad, close quote. So if Madison had any use for the notion of a balanced constitution as the way of checking the dangers of uncontrolled power, it is hard to believe that he might not have had some sympathy for the purposes of the church committee and that he would have applied something of the logic of his own 51st Federalist essay to that situation. That essay, I recall, and I'm just going to paraphrase it very briefly here, that if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But because men were not angels, ambition must be made to counteract ambition in order to supply by rival and opposite interests the defect of better motives. These auxiliary precautions, Madison concluded, should be taken into consideration in the distribution of the supreme powers and offices of uh, the state. And finally, if I may be allowed to conclude on a purely personal note, many of you in this room here may remember the late Wesley Frank Craven, who for many years lived uh, in Dickinson Hall and taught colonial history uh, to the Princeton History Department. Frank uh, was one of the directors of my dissertation, and I well recall in 1973, and note again that it is 1973, giving him the first draft of my first chapter. In that chapter, I had come across some evidence that Madison had been much more directly involved in the political manoeuvring that had led to the War of 1812 than most historians had previously supposed. I laid out this evidence with all the enthusiasm of a graduate student eager to make a good impression. I succeeded, but not quite in the ways that I had imagined. Frank read the chapter and said, Yeah, that's very interesting, but I have, he said, John, just one word of advice for you. Remember, he said, James Madison was not Richard Nixon. As always, Frank, you are right, more so than you could have ever known. <laughs> Thank you. All right, uh, our organizer tells us we have space for two questions. Okay. Yes. George Washington had had some success with spy networks during the Revolution. Was that, in a way, the foundation for the agents that worked for later presidents and Madison? Well, yes, in the sense, uh, in the sense that I think so. That. Uh, Washington as commander-in-chief and then subsequently as president himself and all future presidents realized that they did need some intelligence. Uh, and there were no formal ways of getting this. You know, there was no government agency you could get to. So they resorted to this ad hoc practice of employing agencies uh, when the occasion required. They were one-off things. Um, uh, so, so in that sense, yes. Uh, uh, if you go and look at some of these histories of covert operations, they will in fact start with Washington's intelligence gathering in the revolution itself, then go on. Uh, but all, and uh, there are books on executive agents in early American foreign policy. Uh, the difference is, of course, that it's, it's, it's on an ad hoc basis. It's never really institutionalized. The difference, of course, is in the 20th century uh, is that it became coordinated and institutionalized and became systemic. 
Uh, and of course, as we've been saying in a number of different contexts uh, uh, throughout last night, you know, uh, Madison's very sensitive to systemic consequences and the differences between something that's systemic and something that maybe not systemic as opposed to circumstantial. But yes, most historians would sort of regard uh, Washington's intelligence uh, activities as, as, as a sort of early example of this. Uh, and you can sort of you, you trace the, you trace the history of American intelligence to that very that very circumstance that you just raised. Uh, one more silence, uh, Ralph. <laughs> I wonder if the uh, problem isn't has it doesn't have to do with the the Cold War or and it wasn't cold. It was a, the great power struggle of the day was between France and Britain. Mm. And the United States was a, uh, not a great power at the time. And so everything depended on what the great powers were going to do about these territories. Either, very ominously, Napoleonic power in Spain might take over, or the British fleet might occupy it. And the, those are the worst alternatives yes. yeah. for the United States. And the other alternatives, if a legitimate, weak Spanish power stayed, that was legally okay, but alternative to that would have to be either independence movement or possibly the American uh, taking over of those, or the, the American, what would we say, uh, sponsorship of those movements. And the, 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 that's the real problem. The real problem is that we weren't a great power. And in that sense, uh, we weren't maneuvering to uh, uh, subvert other countries from our great power standus, but, but really we were working within the, the, the periphery of the great power struggle. Yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely right. That's one way of defining the alternatives uh, and the, the, the possibilities that emerge out of the situation. Uh, and uh, it was a nightmare of American foreign policy that the British would be the ultimate beneficiaries of the breakup of the Spanish Empire. And uh, it's, it's a theme that's sort of subterranean, it runs its surfaces in all sorts of ways. And I, I think it came to the front in the summer of 1810 because uh, Madison, I think, uh, reached the conclusion that Spain it was on its last legs. The end was in sight. And it's, 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 uh, you define one set of alternatives. And the issue really is, uh, or the last one in some ways, what is the relationship of the United States to an independence movements in these regions. Uh, but it's complicated in this case, but in two of the three cases, the United States had a prior claim. Now you can question how soundly based that claim was. You know, Henry Adams wrote sarcastically about the, the value of the claim to West Florida and things like that, but nonetheless the claims had been staked out some time ago. And in 1810, I think in, this is particularly West Florida and Texas, uh, they have to be vindicated or they'll be forfeited. Uh, but I think in neither case, in fact, although that's the problem that Madison's looking at, that he, that he actually thought that he was, so, he, I'm saying he didn't send an agent to sponsor independent movements for manipulation for that purpose. Uh, I think he was, uh, in some cases, he, he was looking to negotiate with a, with a new power. That's certainly the case in Texas. Uh, in other words, all these episodes are, uh, just, uh, are, in fact, much more complex than the historiography we have on them would lead us to believe. We, in fact, have a very simple-minded historiography on this that, in fact, suggests, well, it looks fishy, and some of it looks fishy. And the way to explain that fishiness is, well, of course, you know, they wanted these places, they went out and got them, and they weren't too particular about the means. Yeah.
Uh, but Madison, I think, was a man who was always particular about means. Uh, 